Hey, you guys. Um, thank you so much, Skylight, for hosting this. This is amazing. It's a real dream come true. And thank you, Future Tense, and everyone who came tonight. I'm so excited. This is awesome. So I'm going to read um, just three really short pieces, and then um, I'll have a chat with CL. Um, which I'm really looking forward to. Thank you so much, Ciel, for being here. Um, so the first piece I'm going to read is called Insubordination. And here I go. I am buttering bread when a man wearing a mask walks in and says, Okay, on the floor. So I put down the butter knife and sit cross-legged. He says, Where are the others? And I shake my head. And he says, Who is all that bread for? And I say, me. And he says, unlikely. And then Danny and Clark walk into the kitchen, and the man says, okay, guys, down on the floor. So the boys get down. I ask, what do you want? And the man says, money. And I say, we don't have any money, as you can see. And the boys look at me. He says, where is the man of the house? And I say, these are the men. And he looks at the boys, and they both straighten up for a moment. I can see Clark's hands are shaking, but Danny looks tough. He's got that firm lips he gets when he gets fed up, when he wants SpaghettiOs instead of a sandwich, the hockey shirt instead of the truck shirt. Okay, the man says. He comes to me and lifts me by the elbow. Danny says, hey. I tell him it's okay. I tell him to stay down. The man takes me to the bedroom and says, show me where it is. I say, there isn't anything to show. He says, show me something then. I don't know what he means, but I pull open the top drawer of the dresser with all the jewelry. He peeks inside. Something else, he says. I pick up the wooden box from the vanity and open it, hand him my father's gold watch. This is nice, he says. He pockets it, then says, okay, what else? I look around the room. I open the second drawer of the dresser and reach under the sweaters. I pull out a framed photo of me at Niagara Falls. Have you been? I ask. The man takes the photo and looks at it. No, he says. This is bullshit. <laughs> I tell him I have $22 in my purse. He makes me get it. Danny says, Mom? From the other room. And I say, Sit down, Danny. The man is mad. He gets in my face. I say, Why did you come here? He says, I saw the BMW, and I say, that's an old car, you can have it. He says, I know. I say, why don't you leave then? And he says, no. And I say, why don't you stay then? And he says, what the fuck? <laughs> I am trying to remember any story about this kind of thing, about what people did and how they survived. My brother is a cop, I say. The man laughs. I used to be a cop. He says. He walks around the bedroom, touching my things. He pulls the curtain aside and looks into the street. Who's that? He says. I go to the window and stand next to him. There is a woman parking her car. I don't know, I say. Yeah, you do, the man says. I honestly don't. The man drops the curtain and sits down on the bed. He looks up at me, and for the first time, I see that those eyes in the holes are green. You have green eyes, I say. Don't talk to me like that, he says. I hear noise in the kitchen. Boys, sit down, I shout. The man laughs. I look at him. This isn't funny, I say. He stands up. He stands over me. 
I'm going to burn this house down, he says. I shrug. I lean on the dresser. I'm going to burn the car. I tell him it's his car. He takes the Niagara Falls picture and throws it against the wall. Danny yells from the kitchen, Sit down, I shout. The man looks at me and I look at him. His eyes become narrow. You're under arrest, he says. For what, I say. Insubordination, he says. I shake my head. The man wipes his hand over the front of his mask. You're a misfit, he says. He walks back to the kitchen and I follow close behind him. Your mother is a lawbreaker, he says to the boy. Your mother is a danger to society. Clark and Danny look at me. Clark cocks his head. The man takes a piece of buttered bread and eats it through his mask. I lean against the wall and nod. She's a misfit, the man says, his mouth filled with bread. He walks slowly to the front door, still chewing. He pushes some magazines off the coffee table. I say, good night, officer, before closing the door behind him. Okay, there's two more. There's two more, guys. Um, Okay, these are short, though. They're short. We got this. Um, This one's called Other Babies. Some babies drink soda the second they are born. They glug it down. The sugar courses through their body. You can see the brown humming through their spiderweb skin. It shoots straight up to the brain, the hub. It clocks in at five past and gets to work. So that's certain babies. Other babies determine the cheese level of their surroundings within seconds of inhalation. Then their fingers form into little paws and they claw, claw at the air. This goes on and on to the point of burnout. Then some kind, pillowy nurse brings a cheese cube and pops it into their mouth just to balance things out. Other babies are vibrating piglets. They have fleshy hooves. They have regular faces. It'll be a tough life for those babies, so decisions must be made. Go pig? Some babies go pig. Other babies don't. Other babies suck the life force from any adult human that looks into their clean glass baby eyes. The adult humans are powerless. They melt, get like a candle, dripping and lopsided. Their mouths stretch out against their bodies like wax, a lip starting at the shoulder and ending near the thigh. They try to lift an everyday object, a pencil. They can't. Their fingers are useless. They look at the baby and something strong happens inside of them. Other babies have the ability to chew gum. They find a way to move it around in their soft pink mouths, gum on gum. Any baby who can chew gum is known in their circle as a riot. (laughs) Other babies do not care to move. They lie like rocks from the moment of birth. They lie like bricks. They stare up at the clouds and watch them slip across the sky. The clouds move like liquid, like milk. Other babies have four television screens positioned around their heads for total saturation. The outside world ceases to exist. These babies make friends with the pink cat. They stink of stumps as seats. They aren't curious about anything. They don't ask any questions at all. Other babies are leaf dwellers. They prefer the dirt and they cocoon themselves in leaves. They bite a breathing hole through their leaf wrap. The darkness is welcome. No eye holes. Their bodies turn cold and tight, and then they bloom. Other babies hang on the rear windshield wipers until a member of a driving family says, there's a baby back there on the wipers. (laughs) 
They pull over and pry the baby's fingers from the wipers, a surprisingly tight grip. Then they brush the flies and the grime from its body and decide to love it. Other babies can smell when meat is perfectly cooked. They let out a violent bark, like a seizure-sensing dog sensing a seizure. (laughs) These babies end up kitchen companions, propped on the counter, maybe strapped to a cupboard with a bungee cord. Other babies look groovy in tiny jean jackets or tiny leather jackets and tiny leather pants. They wear groovy little sunglasses with an elastic strap. The plastic smashes their eyelashes. Their onesies are decorated with bones. <laughs> Other babies pinch themselves and cause injury, puffy arms and legs covered in sharp red pops. This condition is handled with heavy, heavy sedatives that cause a baby's eyes to roll back in their head and their mouth to go slack, and they can't listen or learn or even eat, but they also can't pinch. Other babies are stubborn jackasses. They cross their arms and roll out their bottom lips and just refuse. <laughs> Other babies carry small baskets everywhere. They exit the womb with a basket on their arm. Then it's time to fill up the basket, gauze or whatever at the hospital, then moving forward, anything else that is around. Packs of chiclets, earrings, coins, diaper cream, eggs, crackers, tape. They carry the basket around and people peek inside the basket and say, oh, what have you got there? (laughs) And the baby holds it up all proud. Other babies prefer cows over any other animal. They admire their tall bodies and large heads. They admire their twitching legs and the flies gathered around their eyes. They want to hug a cow's neck, pull the loose skin, have the cow not react, or have the cow lick their chins very hard. Other babies read at a high level right away. They hold a newspaper out in front of them and shake it to flatten the pages. They lick their thumb and turn to the world news. They get a serious look on their bald faces. They look out the window and think something, then turn back to the text. Other babies do not make it very long as babies. It would have been better if they were born a bit older. They can't be handled. They make someone scream and want to crash the truck. Sometimes they are poisoned. Sometimes people have to live with having poisoned a baby. Other babies are very alive. They are in every room, in every muscle, in every eyeball. They are loud, rushing blood. They are the arm or the leg of someone, and that person can never shake that arm or leg. They just stare at it wonder if it's really a part of them or if it's not a part of them. They can't figure it out. Is that baby me? Am I that baby? It's all very confusing. They really want to grab and find out. They try to hold their own hand, their own leg. They feel their skin on their skin, and they cry. One more. Um, one more. This one's short, I swear. It's really, it's quite short. Um, this one's called Scooter. I saw a man holding a gun to a dog's head and another man taking their picture. So I stepped back and assessed, like, number one, what is going on here? Number two, do I want to see it if this man blows this dog's head off? Number three, what's the other possibility here? The other possibility that my brain came up with pretty fast, I have to say, is that this is a photo shoot for an instructional book on dog training. The title of the book is, Do You Ever Just Want to Kill Your Dog? (laughs) Or maybe it's, Are You Holding Your Dog Hostage? Which could mean that you're not walking your dog or taking it out enough, and that's the reason for the bad behavior. (laughs) Or maybe it's, You Won't Have to Hold a Gun to Your Dog's Head to Get Them to Do These Ten Tricks. 
That's the obvious situation. So I lean over the fence and I say, hey, when does the book come out? <laughs> and the men both turn to me and the dog tries to lie down and the man with the gun nudges the dog back into a seated position. The man with the camera is crouching and he stands up and walks to the fence, gets right up on it and looks into my eyes and his eyes are green and he says, do you want to see something crazy? And I say, well, not if it's what I think you mean. And I nod at the man with the gun and the camera guy looks at him and then looks back at me and laughs and says, what? No, come on over. Come on, there's a gate here. I think, well, okay, maybe I can save this dog. We'll be bonded for life. Maybe I'll get shot in the process, be a local hero, get a sum of money. I go through the gate, and I get in there with the three of them, and the camera guy says, come here, look at this. He takes me to the dog, and he says, Scooter, get up. Scooter, get up. The dog gets up, and its back legs are totally dead, like paralyzed or something, and the knees, I guess you'd call them, are calloused over. The camera guy says, go ahead, Scooter, shake a tail feather. Walk a while. The dog listens and starts going and is just dragging those worthless legs, but is really moving, not slow at all. And then the camera guy says, Okay, Scooter, good job. Come back now. And the dog listens. The camera guy says, This dog doesn't deserve to die, but some people want it to die. Oh, I see, I say, so you're not killing it. The camera guy says, No, we're not killing it at all. And the man with the gun aims at the sky and pulls the trigger, and nothing happens except for his loud whoop his loud and joyful whoop. <laughs> Thank you, guys. So we're going to have a chat now, me and okay. CL. All right. About writing and things. <laughs> Thanks for reading those. Thank you know, you. I noticed all the green eyes that I, I know. had in, in the past. I'll have to ask more about that. Um, if you but, dare. <laughs> but you should read all the stories in these because they're all great. Um, one of my favorite stories in the collection is Sample Sale. And uh, it's about this girl who, thanks to insomnia, gets to the front of a sample sale line, but then gets so stressed out, she passes out and ends up not buying anything. Um, and a lot of your stories kind of deal with these themes of anxiety. I was wondering if that was like a... <laughs> yeah. If that was a um, conscious choice for you in your writing. Um. Yeah, I mean, conscious or subconscious, I, I deal with anxiety a lot in my life. So I think it's only natural that it entered into my writing. Um, you know, in Sample Sale in particular, it's, it's kind of about a woman who um, is having an actual mental break. And it's having a moment where she's in a real-world situation and going through this anxious freak out um and it's you know that's a thing that happens and um it's 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 kind of revealing to be writing about anxiety so much but I've dealt with it for so long that it just is something that um I feel more comfortable talking about now and writing about it has actually been kind of therapeutic in that it like normalizes it for me like it makes it something that's outside of myself that's not just in my head um, that I can put into a situation where I can like understand it and think about it as 
something that other people are going through as well. So yeah, it comes up a lot. You'll see a lot of anxiety in my book, um, but it won't be stressful. I hope that it'll be kind of um, interesting in a way because it's also it's also about like identity and the self and and thinking about how. Um, you know, how you can kind of, like, reach a middle ground with yourself and, like, who you are, and um, that's a big part of it as well, like, identity stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sure. So, related to that, I mean, with anxiety, you add a lot of humor. So yes. So, it's not like, you know, stressful anxiety. No, it's not totally <laughs> gloomy at all, no. Yeah. Um, well, with this story and with others, a lot of my favorite stories kind of tend to be about these women who aren't old yet, but they are, they're definitely women, they're adults, but they're, they haven't found themselves, they're sort of unmoored, um, don't really know what they're doing, don't really have it together. This question may reveal more about me than about your stories, but those stories really attract me. Um, and I'm not really, I'm not so much asking about like whether the stories are like memoir-like or biographically true, but I was wondering, you know, on an emotional level, um, how much of yourself do you feel like you put in your writing? I used to think, I, I think it was a defense mechanism. I used to think none at all. Like, I would be like, this is nothing to do with me, man. This is fiction. But, like, I think that there's, there's, no, possi- there, it's, there's no way to write without putting some of yourself into it. Um, so there's a lot of myself in all of these stories. And it might even be just, like, some, like one thing I thought that made it into a story or one thought I had. Um, but... It's certainly, like, the lines are fully blurred. Um, There's some things in here that have definitely happened to me, um, but exist in, like, a completely fictional realm. So, like, I'll take a thing that happened to me and put it in a fictional story, Um, which, for me, is is comfortable. Um, I've never written memoir. I've never really written personal essays. Um, I haven't really tried to. It might be something to try, but um, for me, that's what's comfortable is to kind of like slip some things in there um, and otherwise have it be something I can control and create, which mm-hmm. works for my anxiety level. <laughs> <laughs> um, even with the three stories you read, they were so varied. Like, yeah. a couple are sort of, I mean, none of them really have traditional narrative arcs, but a couple of them have a narrative, the baby one less so, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And some of them, some of the pieces are really, really short. They kind of seem like prose poems to me. Um, And I was wondering, just because you have such a variety, things that have more of a narrative, others that seem much more poetic, do you have different writing processes for those? Or is it the same process, just the end product is different? It's actually pretty different. I would say that the ones that are um, more poetic or kind of like experimental in form are a lot easier and more fun for me to write. They kind of start out as like, just I let myself mess around and that's always how I did writing is just like letting myself have fun with it. And then, you know, when when I do the more narrative ones, I'm a lot more worried about, I really don't want to be like, 
cliched or sent overly sentimental and I worry about that a lot with narrative form it's just like something I worry about um controlling I think it's because I'm less comfortable with just straight narrative I'm way more comfortable with the surreal or the poetic which is actually I think why I've been writing a lot of poetry lately it's felt like a really linear move to just like start writing poetry because I I love um doing that type of work like the stories in my collection that are more poetic like those were just like a joy to work on where a lot of times the more narrative ones I was like ugh, like this feels like this feels like a schlep like I feel like I like I'm trying to figure it out and like not be over sentimental and like get something emotional across and set a mood without being overly literal um and for me that's I think it's just a taste thing too like I, I like movies that are less literal, um, that are kind of like mood pieces. So I'm always looking at like the taste level of things. And for me, it's harder to like nail the taste level on a narrative piece for whatever reason. Sure. I mean, I did definitely notice the poetic lines and the poetic language. Um, I have to ask, how do you know something... I mean, you said you're writing more poems now. How do you know that those are poems, but the ones in here are stories? I don't. (laughs) That's the thing that's crazy, is like, uh, there's all these, you know, it's like we have to put labels on what it is that we're doing, but there's been many times when I've written something and, and been like, I don't know what this is. I don't think it fits, like, into what's a traditional short story. I don't know if it fits into what's a traditional poem. Um, and so, but, like, you know, the nature of doing this type of work is like that's asked of you to define it and so you kind of have to figure out or try to figure out where you fit in but I think um I don't know I think there are some things in this book that like even when I was talking to my publisher about it I was like I don't know these are stories these might be poems he was like it's okay um (laughs) but yeah I don't know and I don't like rules like I don't like the rules about that stuff I like being able to just do what feels right and whether it's a story or a poem or somewhere in between whatever works sure yeah um you brought up the surreal already yes which i'm glad you did (laughs) and one one story that stuck out to me i mean some of those stories that have a narrative are still surreal like there's a story about a kid who's like way out in the middle of nowhere and putting coins into this like peep show but when the like door thing opens when I guess the people opens it's like hairy women's legs yeah but he's like addicted (laughs) addicted to it by the book keeps putting the coins in (laughs) find out so I I wanted to great story you should get the book um I was wondering <laughs> where that surreal comes from is it is it dreams is it just an interest in the surreal in general are you a surrealist I'm a surrealist man <laughs> No I think I am though um there there's like one story in the book that came from a dream but ultimately um the the reality is this is, I'm going to be real with you guys for a minute, um, that a part of my anxiety is that I occasionally experience a little bit of dissociation, which means that you're a little bit of, like, outside of your body, things feel a little bit, like, either hyper-real or less than real, and 
for me, that's resulted in a world that even when I'm not experiencing those things, just like feels or looks a little bit strange. Um, and because of that, I've been, I think I've been drawn to like writing things that are a little otherworldly or like dreamlike, just cause like that's actually how I experience the world. Like I actually go through the world feeling a little hyper aware in a way that's like probably not great. Like it's like maybe a little too hyper aware. Um, but because of that, like I'm drawn to that. I'm drawn to the idea of like things that are, um, there, but not there. Um, and yeah, so I do, I, I've had like people ask me like, are you a surrealist? And I'm like, I guess, I don't know, I guess so. But it's interesting because in this collection, like there are stories that are really surreal and then there are ones, mm-hmm. ones that are a little bit straight, but even the ones that are like more narratively, um, straight, just like within, um, a lot of times the narrator's like interiority, there's like this kind of unease or eeriness that might lend itself to that kind of thinking as well. I studied surrealism when I was in grad school. Um, and you did not go to grad school. You did not no. do the whole MFA thing. You're totally self-taught. Um, and I guess, uh, could you talk about how you started writing and at what point did you start identifying yourself as a writer? Yeah, um, I've been writing for a really long time. This is going to be, this is going to sound like cheesy and cliche to say, but I have been writing since I was really little. My parents are here, and they have a lot of my um, stories from when I was like nine years old that were just like real weird. But um, So I've been writing for a long time, but I never, for some reason, I never thought it was like a thing that I could actually pursue on a real level for whatever reason. So I've always been doing it kind of as, as a hobby. Um, and maybe about like seven years ago or so, I was exchanging writing with a friend of mine who um, is a really great person um, and someone I think of as sort of like a mentor. And he, he has an MFA and he was like, you should submit this stuff. And I was like, I don't even know what that means. Like, what what would that even mean? And I knew about literary journals and that kind of thing, but he kind of, like, told me about the process. And um, so I started doing it, and um, it worked out. And it was sort of surprising to me because there has been there have been times where because I don't have an MFA or because I don't have any kind of, like, you know, I didn't even really... I've never done a workshop or anything um, where I felt a little bit like a phony or like I don't know what I'm doing. Um, but I've I've kind of let that go a little bit because I've gotten enough um, support where people are like, you're fine, man. Like, you don't need that. So I've only really started identifying as a writer in the past, like, few years. And it was really like Kevin at Future Tense... Um, I met him in Portland, and he he said, like, I really like your stories. You should send me a manuscript, and I kind of didn't believe him. I was like, okay, yeah, I'll do that, um, and I didn't, and then he followed up with me, and it's it's kind of it's a it's a thing where I've I've almost needed to be like I've needed to feel the need to be legitimized and part of that I think is because I didn't go to school like I'm almost like am I for real like is this real um but I feel good about it now and it's something that I've done for so long that like it it feels right and continues to feel right and um it's really cool to like be doing this like this is just great 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you're doing it. Um, obviously, you didn't do any formal workshops, but did you have, or maybe you did, did you? No, I didn't. Okay. <laughs> um, so, did you have people read your work? Do you share your work before you send it out? Yes, totally. I have, like, um, I have a few readers who I trust explicitly, and there are people who, like, for me, it's like a taste level thing. Like, it's people who I have to, like, trust their taste because I like what the work that they do or um, I, I like the work that they like. Um, and one of the things I struggle with a lot and I like talk about a lot interpersonally with my friends and stuff is how I have a really hard time with the idea that like it's impossible to be objective. Like how can you possibly be objective about your own work? You really can't. So my best bet is to put that trust in people who's taste I admire and who um, I think, you know, I want them to approve of the work I'm doing. So yeah, totally. Um, I, I definitely look to certain people. And even when I'm writing, like even when I'm writing, I have certain people in mind who I'm like, would they think this is cool or lame? Like I can't, I don't know. And I'll hold those people in my mind sort of as like my ideal reader, which has been really useful to me. Mm-hmm. Um, the individual stories in this collection as we've talked about are really really varied but when I read the collection they really did seem to cohere Mm -hmm. into a work Um, so I was wondering if you could talk about the process of just putting it together Um, how did you know that certain pieces belong together were there a lot of things you chose not to include how did that come about yeah this was um, it was weird because when uh, Kevin from Future Tense asked me to send him um, some work. I sent him like a really short um, group of stories that I thought maybe he'd want to do a chat book of. Which, for those who don't know, like a chat book is like a little—it's a little small little guy, like forty pages or something. Often there's poetry chat books, um, and he was like, "No, this is great. Like we should do a full length thing." Um, and I had a lot of stories that I had sitting um, around.